This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode number 206. Hello, veterinary friends. Welcome to the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast. I have a lovely guest for you today. It's Dr. Sean McPeck, and he is the owner of Tier One Veterinary Medical Center in Palmer, Alaska. He's a 210 graduate of Colorado State College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. He is a former Army Ranger who developed his leadership skills as a sniper team leader and veterinarian with the U.S. Army Special Operations 75th Ranger Regiment. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. I'm really, really happy to have you. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate the introduction. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I love it. So if you would, I always like to hear where veterinarians got started and their veterinary story. So can you start wherever you want to start and tell me your veterinary story? Sure. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. It's, it's so it's really kind of a uh, a a mixed uh, career because it, it involves both the uh, the, the military uh, and also being on the civilian side and trying to get uh, go, going and get accepted into veterinary school. So starting out, uh, I enlisted in the military right out of uh, out of high school. Uh, always wanted to be a veterinarian growing up around animals. My dad was a horse trainer, um, but uh, I wanted to do in the military wanted to serve, but also to help with, with school, uh, and immediately went through Ranger selection and made it into the special operations, the 75th Ranger regiment, became a sniper team leader, made it up to the rank of Sergeant. And this was pre nine 11, right? So there wasn't a lot going on. And I realized that, Hey, I wanted to make a move on my, my career as a veterinarian, realizing that I needed to get to school. Uh, so got out of active duty, uh, but stayed in the National Guard. I stayed with it. Uh, and at that time, uh, I knew I needed to do something to make my, my application stand out in competing for those those uh, seats in, in veterinary school. So I, I spent some time in Madagascar uh, doing a study abroad, lived there for six months, and actually started darting primates for researchers uh, using my, my skill set. Because uh, you were from- a sniper. 100% correct. And awesome. uh, these researchers are coming back from the field and complaining about how they had, uh, you know, missed and what weren't able to capture. And uh, I offered to help assist with the darting. And the next thing you know, I'm getting invited and hired by the Duke University Primate Center, Johns Hopkins University to go down to Costa Rica and, and dart and um, live capture holler monkeys and spider monkeys. And so uh, that's where I got my my start and really thought that wildlife uh, veterinary medicine was going to be my calling. Um, as I, I did get accepted into uh, veterinary school following my, my graduation, I also was uh, commissioned as a infantry officer in the National Guard. And I uh, basically was told that if I did not get into veterinary school, uh, that I was going to be deployed active duty to Iraq. And mm-hmm. luckily, I, you know, I got, I got accepted my first try. So uh, they gave me a uh, educational delay, a deferment, and as I'm going through veterinary school, all of a sudden I get approached by active duty, uh, and they said, "Hey, if you come back active duty as a veterinarian, we'll help out with some of these uh, college uh, debt that you have." And being from Alaska, being non-sponsored, non-scholarship, out of state, you know, tuition's pretty expensive. Yeah, uh, and so. It was a great deal for me because I loved the military, loved uh, the culture, you know, the the institution of a performance-based institution where uh, if you work hard and you uh, are good at what you do, then that is recognized and rewarded. And so that, and I'll use that as something that I, I applied and as part of my, I believe the success of my hospital uh, was creating a culture of a performance-based institution. Uh, and so, yeah, I went back active duty and immediately uh, spent a year in Afghanistan uh, taking care of the Marines uh, IDD uh, program, which was the improvised explosive detector dogs, where they used Labradors to find these uh, IEDs. And those dogs were so good that they started being targeted a lot and kept uh, the veterinarians very busy, uh, me being one of them. But after that year, 
uh, in the Helmand province and taking care of uh, those, the dogs and that dog program, I realized I wanted to get back to the special operations community. So I went back through ranger selection again, 13 years later, <laughs> and this time as a veterinarian and a commissioned officer and made it through selection uh, and was right back in the special operations community now as a veterinary surgeon leading up the veterinary uh, department at the 75th Ranger Regiment. And obviously they had a working dog program. And also as a uh, veterinarian, I did a lot of the training for the human medics. Um, so uh, that's my uh, quick kind of synopsis of where my uh, career path went and spent another three deployments going to Afghanistan as a veterinarian for the, the Ranger Regiment. Uh, and at 19 years of serving, realized I wanted to get out and and see how this civilian uh, life would be as a veterinarian and worked for uh, almost two years for corporate and realized that, hey, I, I think I can do something better. Hmm. Uh, seeing the, the culture in the corporate side of the veterinary world was something where um, I realized and speaking and hearing the complaints from the techs and the doctors that there was an opportunity, uh, it was a privately owned practice where I could do better and maybe make uh, the retention of staff and those talented doctors and veterinary technicians uh, a core component of my, my mission in creating a practice. Uh, and so I found that, you know, it's, it's very difficult, but if you constantly look at the culture and weeding out the toxic individuals and really focusing on retaining your talented and uh, the, the the good apples, the ones that are coming there every day with a, uh, a good attitude uh, because it spreads. It's not just the doctors that are setting the tone, right? I mean, that mm -hmm. technician sure that comes in, right? Exactly. You know, and yeah. so um, emphasizing that constantly that, hey, uh, this is something where we all have an impact on the culture that we come here to work in and being in this environment. And yeah. so um, I, I spent a lot of time really focusing on positive reinforcement, uh, creating a performance-based culture where those people that were wanting to do uh, more, the, those technicians that wanted to learn how to run a blood bank, uh, blood bank program, those technicians that wanted to learn how to uh, run a CT, do an MRI, uh, that those were recognized and rewarded. And the same thing with the doctors too, not just always doing the, the negative uh, stuff, focusing on counseling people that not, you know, taking time to do the positive reinforcement too. Uh, and so uh, really working on the culture, I think is important for success because if we constantly ignore problems and we're afraid to face an issue, it, it's going to fester uh, and that people are going to see that, right? There, there's going to be animosity if somebody gets, uh, you know, this do as I say, don't do as I do uh, type uh, leadership that is- That doesn't work. No, it does not work. And because people see that you got to lead from the front. There can't be anything beneath you. I'm going to clean a toilet. I'm going to use that mop. Um, and I'm, because I'm going to be asking somebody else to do that. So I'm not going to sit here and say that that's beneath me, but I want you to do it. Right. And so showing uh, that you're willing to do something uh, that you're also going to be asking somebody to do uh, is very important uh, and setting that example. Right. So what do you think the disconnect with all of these corporations is? Because, you know, since I've been in vet med, I've been in it a long time. It's changed from privately owned practices almost exclusively now to almost all corporations. Because you worked for a corporation and you know what that's like, what do you think they're getting wrong? What do you think they need to do differently for us? In well, there's a couple of things, right? So uh, I think a lot of the, the the, the clients feel that there's a detachment from a corporate entity uh, because uh, I don't think that uh, their, their issues or um, whether it's complaints or concerns are addressed directly. And, and taking a time, the time to uh, address things is very important. And that's capturing your social media, right? When you get these uh, false narratives that people posting, a lot of times it's a a very snippet of a, a truth and then an elaboration to get become a victim and to get this uh, social media attention. So capturing that right away and addressing it and putting out the truth is very important. Um, but also reinvesting in the hospital. Uh, that was the big thing that I saw when working for it is that there was a failure of the corporate side to reinvest in the, whether it's the equipment or the people. 
they're more worried about that, getting as much profit out of it as quickly as possible without, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how many times we beg to just get a fluid pump. Uh, and of course, technicians are dying to get nice equipment because they want to practice the best medicine possible. Right. And if they're sitting there feeling like they can't even uh, get basic equipment, you know, a bear hugger uh, to keep a patient warm, for example. Uh, and so I've taken it uh, as a goal of mine to constantly reinvest and have the best equipment possible so that not only my doctors can practice the best medicine and offer that to the clients, but also your technicians feel like they are supported to be able to, to do that patient care and feel like they're practicing that, that high quality medicine that everybody got into the field to, to want to do. Uh, and so as veterinarians, I feel like a lot of times we're trying to create and, and scramble uh, to, to get things uh, when um, because the, the corporate entities are unwilling to reinvest into that hospital. And so, um, you know, and it's not just the equipment, it's the people too, right? I talked about that. And so I spent a lot of time doing team building. I've hired a a, a communications professor from the local university. I don't know how multiple times to come out and, and role play with, with actors uh, so that our client service representatives and our technicians know how to deal with different, whether it's a difficult client, whether it's an upset client, these type of things that many times they're not prepared to deal with. All of a sudden you have a client yelling at you. How, how, do, how do you deal with that? Uh, and deal with it in a way to where you don't have people uh, leaving because they don't feel like they're supported, right? The client is not always right. Uh, as much as uh, that's, that know. was the old adage, right? As the customer right. is always right, but that's not necessarily true. And I think because of the emotion in our profession, that they get that much more ramped up. So if we can learn to handle that emotion and kind of bring it down, that's helpful too. One hundred percent, and that that is also within the practice, right? Conflict resolution is a is a difficult thing, and if you have infighting going on and you're not willing to address it and really speak on the teamwork atmosphere, uh, is the same thing. And so you'll you'll lose people because of the culture, um, but also showing them that you you're supporting them, right? If there is something that happens, you've got to support your staff. You've got to, but if they're wrong, then address it. But, you know, putting your staff first and showing them that you're going to support them in the face of adversity is very important uh, in, in that culture. And them realizing that you as a leader uh, are, are there for them. So that, that's one thing that, that I've, I've taken uh, very strongly in showing that not only do I support the staff, but that I'm going to lead from uh, the front, going to lead by example uh, in, in all facets. So. Yeah, it's um. There's a lot of emotional part of the 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 industry that I think that uh, is some people are not prepared to deal with and have a difficult time with it, and maybe that drives some of it towards selling and you know selling to the corporate because of the uh, the emotional part, the client communication part that I think is very taxing, especially uh, these days. I don't know if it's post COVID, but there's definitely a lot more uh, people online that are uh, abusive, but also within the, the hospitals too, uh, and so. Uh, preparing your staff for that and not being afraid to fire a client. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it comes to that sometimes, but you've got to, you've got to protect your staff. They cannot be abused at all. So what's, what's a part of that other than, you know, you're training them to communicate. You're talking about, you know, I get rid of the toxic environment. I, I don't want a toxic environment. What's involved in that? Do you think like if your if your practice is toxic presently, because I'm sure there's people listening that have that situation, what do you see is number one, the primary issue? Is it the leaders or is there something else that you can do if you're not the leader to help with that toxicity? Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I, I think it's a uh, multifaceted 100% that those, if you are a leader within an organization, you're a practice owner, uh, your medical director, whatever, you've got to be willing to address problems that are brought up because there's nothing more uh, frustrating for lower ranking employees than to feel uh, a, a hypocrisy or an unwillingness to address. And you've got uh, a certain individual that you know, maybe they've been there for uh, 20 years and they are just disgruntled and they treat everybody like dirt, but uh, the uh, management won't do anything about it because 
that person has been there so long and you know they they know the only code to the back gate or whatever something silly <laughs> right and so they're the only uh, one that can run the blood machines or something right like there's, exactly there's always exactly. like that excuse that we've got to keep that person because they're the only one that does x y or z 100 and i'm not saying you know move right to firing but you've got to be willing to you know have that verbal communication uh then okay if this keeps going then we go up to a written counseling uh but also focusing on the positive being willing to recognize staff uh, every staff meeting i'm i'm quizzing my doctors i'm asking my my uh, lead technicians hey who who did awesome this month who stands out who was willing to come in and go that extra mile well, I want to recognize them. I'm going to do a certificate. I, I've got a coin that I'm going to give them, uh, you know, something in front of everyone and recognizing them. There's a very basic leadership 101, right? You praise in public and you discipline in private, right? So uh, taking the time to recognize those, those employees that are standing out, whether it's a, a tech, a doctor, or a client service representative, somebody from the admin uh, is very important. Uh, I do team building exercises. Uh, like I said, I invested in, in I bringing those. in coaches. Uh, but also, man, I've set, I, I bought, you know, whitewater rafting trips for my, my, my staff to go to. And because we're a 24 hour hospital, uh, you've got to be able to think outside the box. I can't just do one event because, you know, some of that staff Not everyone can go. go, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> place down. Yep. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, uh, having a company where you tell them, Hey, uh, these are all my employees. Uh, they've got, uh, you know, example, I did a snow machining uh, ATV excursion where my staff over the course of a week could plan with their, their family or, or other colleagues uh, to go and and uh, go out on, a, on a, a, a snowmobiling tour. Same thing with with, you know, fishing a lot. So bottom line, be, be creative, think outside the box, think of things that uh, your staff would enjoy doing, uh, because that's going to create that culture that's going to build that that team camaraderie. Uh, and that's going to be brought back to your your hospital. Yeah. So if you, what, what advice, well, you're kind of talking about positive reinforcement. So if someone is in a situation, let's say that they're starting to feel burned out by vet med, because it sounds like you're pretty passionate about this career that you've developed. If they're really starting to get burned out and frustrated and overwhelmed by actual practice, what kind of advice do you give them? Because I'm sure you have this with some of your employees sometimes where they're oh, starting sure. to feel overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there, there's only so much you can do, right? Uh, and so I, I think that you see it a lot more in the emergency medicine side of the house, you know, because one, uh, veterinary medicine is getting expensive, right? And money is emotional. And so you compound that with somebody coming in where uh, they, you know, God forbid, they, they, you see a lot with people that they tie their dog up to the back of the bumper when they go camping or something like that, and they forget and they drive off, right? Yeah. So a horrible situation. Um, but they, you know, they come in, emotion is high. And now all of a sudden you give them an estimate for uh, surgery, hospitalization, you know, five to 8,000 out, whatever. And uh, now the emotion is even ramped up even more. And you get this, well, you don't care about, uh, because you only care about money, you know, that type of right. thing. Right. You only and, care about money. That's the line. Right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's nothing more frustrating as a, a medical professional when medicine is expensive, you know, and if that individual didn't get pet insurance, unfortunately, the burden of that falls on that individual. And very rarely do you have people that are, you know, just have an extra 5,000 laying around ready for emergency treatment. And so um, the, the people that are getting, I think, burnt out many times are the ones that are having a hard time dealing with the emotional side of the house when it comes to clients that are amped up uh, with money uh, and the the emotion of that, having that conversation. So um, I, I try to look for ways to uh, solve problems when I, when I, you know, for a while, I was having a lot of doctors complaining about how many messages they were getting uh, and dealing with all of these callbacks that took up so much time uh, out of their day. And so uh, I tried to think outside the box and I have a, a licensed veterinary technician who has a lot of uh, uh, career uh, experience and her job right now is just dealing with client callbacks to take away that uh, time from the, the, the doctor. You know, we look at the human side, these medical doctors, they have physician assistants. Mm -hmm. They have all of these things set up where they don't even deal with talking about money. Right. Uh, they're dealing, they're talking about the, the medicine. Uh, and so uh, I think that that's really important to try to have uh, the doctors not focused on so much on that, you know, getting those estimates and then having other individuals discuss that with the, the owners, uh, having people involved in your 
uh, your hospital that can deal more with, with the client interaction, uh, I think helps to remove some of that, that burnout that we see with doctors because uh, the, the emotional level, uh, especially on the emergency side, really takes a toll. Um, on the, the general practice side, I don't see that as much, you know, with the, the shots and snots type thing. Uh, and on the specialty side of the house, you know, at my hospital, I've got a boarded ophthalmologist, uh, had a resident trained surgeon for a while, uh, so looking for, for a boarded surgeon for sure. Um, but we've got a, a boarded oncologist and got a whole internal medicine side of the house. And we don't see it as much on that side, right? Uh, because the clients that are coming to them that are being referred to them, but many times they're they're committed to uh, the treatment. They've plan. already uh, had the money discussion. Right, exactly. They know it's going to be expensive, yeah. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, my hospital right now, we've got 25,000 square feet, two, two stories, 22 exam rooms, five surgery suites, and over 70 employees. Uh, and, uh, the, the biggest side that I see being hit, uh, the most is the emergency side. Uh, that is where the emotion is high. That is where the, the money is, is always a, a concern. Um, and so, um, having your staff prepared to have those discussions, I think is really important, um, with your, your staff meetings and going over that, going over scenarios, being prepared and trying to, to prepare your, your staff to deal with that. I think helps uh, on that burnout side. Yeah. So tell me a, a little bit more about your army experience because that's a big part of your life and it still is, I imagine, huh? Tell yeah, me what sure. kind of lessons you learned. Like what how did that prepare you to run a giant hospital like you have now? Well, I think you know the, the biggest thing that uh, I learned was facing adversity, uh you know, going through the, the different things in the military was, again, there was a lot of tests that were done. There was a performance-based institution. And so uh, you're constantly dealing with these goals that you're setting and uh, uh, achieving uh, to be moving upwards, but you're also uh, having these hurdles and these obstacles uh, in front of you, whether they're they're created in training or whether it's real, real world, uh, and realize that you have to address it and you have to keep going and overcome those obstacles. And so you're going to have challenging things occur to you that are not expected. You're going to have that really valuable employee that goes through something messy outside of work, uh, whether it's a divorce, whether it's a family member that is sick, uh, and now they're they're leaving. That, that's nothing that you could do. Uh, but that is a, a hurdle that you have to be prepared mentally uh, to address and be ready to adapt to that. And so uh, the skills, I, I think, just being resilient to change, being resilient to adversity, uh, not being afraid to address uh, issues and conflict resolution is really important, uh, and especially with the military. You've got to have that team camaraderie. You've got to have that, uh, that team atmosphere. And so constantly looking at how do I build my team uh, and the individual, what type of skill set do they have and where are their interests and helping support that. I love that. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think many, many veterinarians forget that they're dealing with individuals and they need to figure out what drives that person, what do they like to do, what are they good at, and and then go down that road. I think 100%. It, Instead of correct. fighting against them and saying, you have to be faster, you have to make, you know, like trying to change them is much harder than trying to work with them and using their skills. Exactly. But you're exactly right. And then also, do you, are you offering those opportunities within the hospital? So that was a big thing that I wanted to do is to constantly offer new services. What, what is the new, uh, what is the best service that I can offer and giving that, that career opportunity for a technician to learn that skill set and, and, and use it. So I'm, you know, investing in advanced imaging. I, I have a CT machine, right. But I need my technicians to be able to, to drive that. And so right, yeah, uh, somebody's got to learn how to run it, huh? <laughs> right. Exactly. So now I've opened up new useless. opportunities. Uh, you're, you're exactly right. And so, uh, and, and talking to, having those sit-downs, you don't just ha have the sit-downs with the individuals when there's something wrong, you know, make, make sure that you're doing counselings and, and talking with people, finding out what, are, what is their career goals? What is your, your, your one-year career plan? What is your five-year career plan? Uh, and trying to help achieve that. I've, you know, I found out a lot about my, my technicians and their, their goals, and then trying to help, help achieve that. Uh, so investing. They're more in likely to stay, right? I, I believe so, 100%. You know, I, I even offer uh, continuing education funds to my licensed vet techs. So not just to my doctors. Obviously, right. they need that. 
but uh, I, I offer that to my, my licensed vet techs too. So showing them that I want to invest in their career, if they want to pursue something, uh, then how can I implement that and offer that in my, my hospital also? Yeah. So um, tell me a little bit about this, um, the Ranger Canine Athletic Program. That was something that you developed. I, yeah, I read that yeah. in your bio and I thought that sounds interesting. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. That was, uh, so I was the, the first, uh, person to actually develop a conditioning program for military working dogs. Uh, that was one of the things that I was shocked, you know, there's such a huge emphasis on the individual soldier or Marine or, or airman on physical fitness, right? They've got this physical fitness test, they've got training programs, but there was nothing for military working dogs. And what, really? what I found a lot that's yeah, fascinating what, that they didn't think of that, huh? Exactly. Well, you know, I think they're spoiled. What really uh, military law enforcement are spoiled, right? Because there's been centuries of breeding and selection that has gone into. I mean, when we look at the athlete, it doesn't matter if it's a human, a horse or a dog. The three pillars of that are going to be genetics, conditioning program, uh, and the uh, nutrition, right? The, that That is the, the three pillars of it. And so the genetics are taken care of. We've got these phenomenal athletes, you know, just take a Belgian Malinois, for example. Oh, I love those dogs. I mean, I'm a, I'm a I mean, Belgian fan. I had Belgian Tavernes. Yeah, they're <laughs> actually fascinating uh, athletes, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, they, they get spoiled because they're so naturally gifted, right? And so, uh, and nutrition is really, you don't, there's billions of dollars of research put into uh, the, the current uh, market of, uh, you know, dog food. If we were to have this conversation 20 years ago, we'd probably be talking about two different brands, maybe that were a right. quality. Uh, now there, there's a lot of research put in. And so that's taken out of it. And so we're looking at these three pillars, the athlete, the big thing is the conditioning program. What are you doing to make sure that your dog is in shape? And what I was seeing is a lot of uh, military and law enforcement had the, the same mentality with a dog as they did with, for example, their rifle, right? They get on the range, they zero it, and they know if they put it in the arms room, it's going to shoot the exact same way as it did three months ago. It hasn't been touched. And so same mentality was with the, the dogs. They were looking at it that way. Well, I went through my certification program. My dog was in shape. Uh, now I just got to keep it fed and keep it happy in, in the kennel. But no, uh, your now, dog. Now he's panting when I make him run. <laughs> right, exactly. And he's so what's he doing shape. when he's panting? Uh, he's not smelling. Right. right. And so they're not moving that, that, that air through their nose to be able to smell. So if we're asking them to detect and to find something and that they're sitting there panting, thermoregulating because they're out of shape, well, then they're not using that nose to sniff uh, and to, to try to find stuff. So yeah. um, making a, um, a conditioning program was something that I realized uh, took the guesswork out of it. Because when I, when I would ask these handlers, well, what did you do today? Uh, well, you know, I went on a run because that dog is going to do what they are doing. And many times they, you know, would go to the gym and work out and lift. And so the dog doesn't get anything to do. Right. Uh, and the dog sits there. And now that the dog is spinning in the kennel uh, and is exhausted because it's been jumping around and it wasn't sleeping. And so now they pull it out to work. And not only is it out of shape, but it's 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 tired. And so I found that uh, conditioning program where you're you're giving the workouts, you've already created it, takes the guesswork out of it. And the, the, the handlers were willing to spend time uh, conditioning their dogs. And so um, Bottom line, I built a, a progressive conditioning program, starting off at baseline fitness and how do we keep moving that goalpost, right? Because the conditioning, the body, we have to uh, stress it, right? You have to stress it just enough where we get the body to change and adapt to those stressors, which is getting in shape. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, but you got to keep moving that because if we don't keep moving that goalpost and realizing that if we overstress it, we get an injury, but if we don't stress it enough, we don't get the change. Right. So you've got that window of opportunity. We got to keep moving that goalpost. Uh, and so uh, realizing that uh, there is only a certain amount of time in the day. And so how do I get these handlers to buy into conditioning their dogs when they've got so much else to do besides keeping their own body in shape? And so that's what I, I look to do. I look to try to create a program which was very successful. And it was the the, the Ranger Canine Athletic Program. I now turn it in. There's only the, uh, the, the two apps that I have created are available on Google and iTunes. It is the ACAP, the Advanced Canine Athletic Program. Uh, and those are conditioning apps where every day, the workout of the day, very similar to what we see CrossFit do, where they've got the WAD, the workout of the day. That workout of the day is actually texted to that dog handler or that owner. Uh, and so the, it takes the guesswork out of it, you know, mm -hmm. and 
um, all of the videos and uh, education on what these different exercises do uh, is in that app. So there's a lot of education to it. Um, the bottom line, I saw a great need for these that were considered athletes, but they weren't being treated as an athlete. Uh, and well, I, it's the person know. that gets the Malinois and doesn't realize what they've got. It's like a time bomb, right? Like sure. my two burns were high energy and I don't know that, you know, just having them be a house dog wouldn't have worked. They had, they're working dogs. 100% correct. Yeah. And that, that's, that's a whole nother story, right? I mean, that's the, uh, the civilian sector when they, they, you see these dogs performing, you're like, wow, I want that, but you don't realize how much work goes into it. And you've got time, to provide yeah. that, for, right. Or, or they're going to be one, they're going to become destructive uh, mm -hmm. at home, or they're, yeah. they're going to develop some type of a behavioral issue because they don't have a job. And so you've got to be able to provide that uh, even just by conditioning the dog. So that, that civilian side is, is a little bit different than the law enforcement and military uh, because we've got dogs across the working uh, dog hemisphere where it's not just detection, right? We've got, you know, the, the TSA dog for sure that, mm -hmm. but there's endurance to that. I mean, they're 10, 12 hours a day. They're running, you know, around a, and walking through an airport, right. um, but and that's mental, much different. Than, they have to stay engaged and that's stressful, yep. that mental engagement. Exactly. Uh, but that's not the exact same job that, you know, we see law enforcement where they've got to, they're doing bite work. Uh, right. They're doing, uh, and detection. So that's a little bit different of an athlete. So we define that athlete, right? We, uh, I use the example of looking at the recent Olympics, every gold medalist for different events would be fit for that event, but a, a sumo wrestler or a weightlifter is going to be much different definition of fit than a swimmer or a triathlete. Right. And so we got to define what fit is for that, that working dog, and then build a conditioning program that is going to help uh, improve them to be able to do their job. Yeah. So this particular conditioning program, could it be used for someone that, I mean, I used to do agility with my dogs and fly ball and like, could it be adapted for that type of, of work? 100%. So I, I've actually done two different apps. Uh, there is the ACAP, the Advanced Canine Athletic Program, which is mainly geared towards your law enforcement military. But then I did the ACAP pet. And so through an extensive initial uh, questionnaire, it puts you as the dog owner in to multiple different categories so that your conditioning program is going to be much different than that of, you know, if this was a a geriatric dog that has had multiple surgeries. Well, to keep them in shape, we're going to do much different than if this was a young two-year-old, uh, you know, Belgian Malinois that's uh, very healthy, right? right? So uh, we've got to define that and then have a conditioning program specific for that. So uh, there's two different apps, you know, the ACAP pet and the ACAP. That's great. Um, that's fascinating. I'm gonna have to check that out. That's really cool. So tell me, changing subjects, tell me a little bit about, about why Alaska? Why is your hospital? I mean, it sounds like you were raised there, right? Yep, I sure, sure was. Yeah. So uh, it it's it was home, uh, and I wanted to come back to it. You know, after the military and my 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 wife and and family that we were raising, uh, after discussion with her, wanted to provide some opportunity that, that I grew up with and, and really enjoy, which was the outdoor experience. And uh, Alaska is very unique in that, uh, you know, we don't have any professional teams uh, and the university uh, sports um, are actually, uh, or the high school sports scene is really, really popular up here. And so there's a lot of opportunities for these young uh, kids to have in, in different club activities and different sports. There's a lot of outdoor activities that are very uh, popular up here, fishing, uh, hunting, hiking. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, state. And there's a lot of opportunity, not only for uh, activities within the school district and the clubs, but also to be able to get out into nature and see that. Uh, you know, and Alaska is one of those rare places where you can drive for an hour in any direction, get out and hike for 15 minutes and be somewhere where nobody else has been. Uh, and to not hear human activity and not have cell phone reception. Uh, and that's very rare. And so if you enjoy it, you want to experience that, you can do that in Alaska and uh, that and get the best of both worlds. And so I chose Alaska because the, the wife and I wanted to have our family be able to experience that. But also uh, there's a huge, huge demand uh, with you know, Alaska, unlike other states, uh, you don't have the the luxury of just being able to drive to another big metropolitan area and possibly access a specialty service that you didn't have uh, in your area. And so we didn't have a lot of options up here. General practice was dime a dozen. 
but that uh, emergency uh, or specialty services, care. yeah, 100%. Yeah, it was, was not uh, a big thing up here. And so I saw a, an opportunity where uh, taking that kind of the blueprint, what we see in the veterinary teaching hospitals, veterinary school, where it's kind of an all-in-one. Uh, and that was my goal to create kind of a practice that was all in one where we had the general practice, but we also had that emergency, that 24 hour hospitalization and the specialty referral side of the house. And so, uh, that's what I started working towards. And now here we are with 70 employees four years later, uh, you know, that's impressive in four years, it got big, huh? Did you start yeah. it out as 24 hours or did you start? How did you, how did you start with that whole, you know, yeah. 24 hours and the specialist, did it all start the same or did you kind of work? No, I definitely had to work towards it. Yeah. That was a constant work in progress and, and had to constantly invest in recruiting. Uh, and that's a difficult thing, right? There's a lot of people that I get on the phone with and then they're lower 48 and trying to recruit, uh, starting <laughs> off like, at, at that. I want to live in Alaska. What? Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Do you guys have stores up there? That type. So, uh, you know, explaining to them that, the, you know, it's a beautiful modern, just like any other state, but they, they've got unique opportunities that you may not have elsewhere. Uh, and that's, uh, uh, a constant hurdle that I face, but uh, once I, I, I invest in bringing people up and showing them uh, it, the, the the practice and the state speaks for itself uh, once they, they're able to see it. So, Are most um, of your employees from from other states and not from Alaska? Not most of them. I, I would say about, about 25%. Um, I, okay. I've had to re recruit quite a few, both techs and doctors from outside the state. Um, yeah, you know, Alaska, we don't, we don't have a veterinary school. We don't have a veterinary technician, you know, program. Uh, and so a lot of in-house, I've invested heavily in in-house training and developed an in-house training program where I get technicians, you know, have no experience, start off as a tech assistant and through the training program, uh, they're taking their VT&E in 18 to 24 months and becoming a licensed vet tech. So, so you have um, your own little veterinary technician school going, huh? But pretty much, yep. We've created a lot of a lot of training opportunities, and we have a, a couple of dedicated technicians that are that run up the training program and are are running classes and uh, so and supporting that. You know, supporting that 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 training uh, atmosphere uh, is really important. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Alaska was home. It was a it was a tough sell for the wife. She was from the East Coast, and uh, but she became uh, very excited about it. Is a hockey mom now, and our kids in nice. hockey and wrestling and gymnastics, all that stuff. And so, um, you, you know, it's a it's it's a great place to to raise a family uh, and a great place. Uh, our hospital, if you want to practice gold standard medicine and have a a community that really uh, is looking for that 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 service yeah and a supportive team right 100 yeah. is what it's all about so tomorrow i am giving a lesson to some young veterinarians that i mentor on time management so i thought i'd take this opportunity to ask you do you have any secrets or thoughts about how to manage your time how you you know can have the family and the hospital and the business and all of that like how do you manage it it's difficult. It really is. Um, but you've got to be find where the problems are and try to create a solution for it. So uh, uh, just an example, um, uh, you know, I, my doctors were getting frustrated at how many callbacks they had to do. Uh, like I said, so, it, you know, I hired a technician. Uh, she was retired to stay, uh, stay at home mom, but uh, I knew she was a licensed vet tech and said, Hey, do you want to be able to work from home? Oh, um, so she and, does it from home. I don't think you yeah. told me that part. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's so a great she's idea. able to do it from home. So that, that was one example. And I know I hit on that before, but yep. that was uh, one that was huge for the doctors because now I've got that, that PA type individual that is that buffer in between the client and the doctor frees them up from answering, you know, silly, uh, you know, needing a prescription on a refill for uh, diet, you know, a certain prescription. Right. Or what should I feed that, my dog or yeah, exactly, questions exactly. that you don't have time for. Yep. Um, yeah. and, and then also, you know, looking at ways, uh, and, and but you've, you've got to keep a pulse on it and find out what, what is dragging down uh, your team and trying to address it, or at least show them that you're trying to address it is, is important. So again, facing those uh, obstacles, not being afraid to address problems and look for solutions, you know, and I, I 
very big at uh, surrounding myself with people that, that are smarter than me, right? Mm. So the, that the, is the, leadership the, lesson number one, right? I, I think that that's genius. If you can get smart people around you, that's a sign of a good leader. Uh, exactly. But it takes a little bit of humbleness to, to be able to admit, hey, what am I not good at? I can't do everything, right? And right. what am I not, not good at? What do I not enjoy? Well, let me find somebody that is really good at that and have them part of my team. Uh, and that's, you know, a little bit on the admin side, but also it has to do with leadership on the floor uh, and putting those people in those positions that are willing to make that difference or are excited about your team and excited about the culture uh, to keep that attitude and uh, keep it, it's it's constantly in motion, right? And so uh, it's like a garden. If you're not willing to get in there and weed it out, it's going to get overrun. So, um, but yeah, time management is difficult um, uh, across the board, trying to find that balance with life, with with family. Um, but you, you've got to constantly work at it. And when I'm, I, I talk to my doctors, uh, I think that the biggest thing that they feel throughout the day is the support. So making sure that your doctors have the support staff is really, really hard, but that comes back to the retention. Uh, what are you doing for to keep those technicians? Are you investing in them? Because that then falls onto the stress level of the doctors or them being able to be productive uh, and do the medicine that they want if they don't have the support staff to be able to uh, help achieve that. Yeah. Do you, I, I find that when I talk to strong leaders and people that are very, very busy, that they have a morning routine or some sort of routine, something that they do to try to keep focused and grounded and, and keep their time um, and their brain under control. Do you have something like that that you do? Uh, so I, I would say uh, more in as far as uh, the, the practice goes, you know, I don't have something big on the outside of, of work. Um, I, I would say that my, my passion right now is really uh, with the family and doing stuff with, with the, the family, seeing my children uh, perform in, in their uh, athletics uh, at this time of life. So is, that's a priority. Is, like you yeah, leave work exactly. so you can go do that. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. that, that is something that, that I really enjoy right now. So I don't, I don't have a specific routine where I, you know, I go to the, the gym at this time every time of the day, because I don't have that, that luxury of a, of a set schedule. Uh, so fine, but you do have to find time and take advantage of the, the opportunities that you do have, uh, and reinvest in yourself, uh, when you do have that opportunity. So, um, you know, as a business owner of a hospital of this size, that is 24 hours, I don't have the luxury of having a, a specific routine right now. Um, but my, I find the passion in, in leading the team, investing in the team, uh, and, uh, constantly making this, uh, the best place that I, po I possibly can for the community, um, but also for uh, the staff and the, the type of medicine that we want to offer. So. Yeah, and I think just just the acknowledgement that that's okay, that this is where your life is right now. Because I, I feel a lot of times our veterinarians that I work with and talk to, and even in my own practice, we struggle to think that it's supposed to be a certain way. And we feel like we're just keeping our heads above water because our kids have this and that and we're running and, you know, trying to keep it all together. And just the knowledge that that's a part of your life, it's not your whole life. And it's okay to be in that time in life when, you know, there's three soccer games over here and there's a band concert and there's a, and you're just running around sometimes trying to keep it all afloat. That's not, that's not wrong. It's not it's not something that you need to fight against. It's it's more of just opening yourself up to all those possibilities. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I'm seeing more and more uh, that uh, people are trying to uh, find, uh, I, I guess, satisfaction in their work and they're getting frustrated so that they're doing the relief work stuff. They're doing the locum thing. And uh, I, I, I find that they have the exact same difficulties as somebody that uh, just has a, you know, that they've signed a contract and they're working out of one hospital. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it, there's no real easy uh, solution to it, but you're 100% correct. It's realizing that the, the certain lifestyle that you have right now is not going to be the same in four years from now. Uh, it's not going to be the same in, in eight years from now. And it's okay to be really busy. Uh, it's uh, because it, it may not be that way. And, you know, as your kids get up, grow. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, grow my and kids leave. are grown, so I have a lot more time than I used to have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, but you're right. It's it's uh, recognizing that it's okay, uh, and there's a, a reason for it. I mean, uh, what what better opportunity and time do you have to work really hard uh, and save, uh, you know, for that that future that you want uh, to build that future that you want when you're when you're healthy uh, and you're you're ready to do it. You know, so um, it's okay to be busy. It's okay to be uh, a little stressed. Well, and if you have a passion for what you're doing, like you do, obviously then it isn't as difficult. So finding that passion spot in your life, passion for your family, passion for your practice. You know, right now you're very passionate about building this practice and and getting it larger and serving the public in your area. And, and that makes it less like work. Sure, sure. And uh, you're exactly right. But, and then finding people that, that have that exact same type of belief is also key. And, and then when you do find those people, making sure that that, you keep them as a priority and you invest in them, uh, I think is important. So uh, that's been part of the, the, the real reality of the success is I've, I've had phenomenal uh, staff and I have phenomenal team members that are, are passionate about their jobs also and their careers. And uh, it makes the whole team realize that uh, we're all in this together and left and right of you, you've got people that want to be there, want to be the subject matter expert, and they have a, a leadership that is reinvesting in them and helping them achieve their goals uh, of their career and their education. Yeah. So I noticed, and I this is a, another switch in the subject, if that's okay, <laughs> Yeah. Of but course. I noticed on your um, website that you're offering virtual appointments. And I've talked to a lot of other veterinarians, you know, on the podcast and off the podcast about that, because I think it, it's kind of the up and coming thing. It's the new thing in vet med since COVID and, and before. So is this something that's new since COVID? Is this something that you've th been thinking about? How is it working? Like, can you just tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, when that became an option, 100% COVID was the driver of exploring that. And that because they passed some legislation where it made it uh, available to get your, your telemedicine license. And so that was something that, that I applied to do. And I thought it'd be uh, a big opportunity because of the, we do have a lot of clients that are very remote and getting in to see a veterinarian can be very difficult. And so uh, I thought that that would be a huge thing. Um, it did not, it, it is not as popular as I thought it would be. Uh, and so uh, I never closed the doors. Even during COVID, uh, I never had any mandates in place. I never went to curbside only. Uh, I stayed open. And my belief was that, you know, it was uh, people wanted to mask up. That's fine. That's your body, your, your health, your choice. I did not mandate that. Uh, and for my staff or for clients, I kept the doors open. And shockingly, uh, I was expecting during COVID with all the lockdowns and the, the talk that I was going to have a 25 to 30% decrease in revenue and, but approaching it from, Hey, we're not just doing curbside. We're not closing the doors. I'm not putting out a bunch of mandates. I had a 35% increase in my uh, clients coming to me uh, because yeah, they did, they were, they were frustrated with the, the corporate uh, environment where they wouldn't even talk to you. You know, that you had to, that you couldn't even come into the, the building. Uh, mm -hmm. And so the wait times were exhausting for people sitting out in the parking lot. Um, and so uh, I, kept the doors open and uh, continued to serve the public. And uh, they, they recognize that, I think. Yeah. Well, you're lucky that you were able to do that because not everybody was in our state. They like, it was mandated that we, that hospitals had to, you know, shut down and do curbside and not do routine things like right at the beginning. And then it kind of eased up a little bit, but um, so, so the telemedicine is still a thing. What do you think about it? Like, what do you think about the future of vet med? Is it, is it something that's going to be a thing? Cause I I've been talking to a few corporations that are starting to actually just be that like there there's businesses opening up that are just doing veterinary telemedicine. And I wonder how that's going to affect our, our uh, yeah. profession. I, I, what, what I end up seeing a lot of times with the, the telemedicine stuff is there's only so much you can do. And uh, they're, they're saying, well, my, my dog has been vomiting uh, for, and has, you know, diarrhea for the last four days. Okay. Well, well, that's not something that I can do right? 100%. We got to rule out the the differentials here and here's the, the worst case scenario. And so that's not something that I can just, you know, do over the phone um, or through a visual zoom call. Uh, so uh, I see a lot of times it, it just comes down to, hey, uh, you got to go in for diagnostics anyways. 
And so um, I don't know how much it's going to have an impact. I don't see a lot of people uh, steering towards that, even with uh, as spread out as people are in Alaska, they are still wanting to come in and have that contact uh, and see that doctor uh, face to face. Yeah. So there's something about that relationship, I think, for the clients and for us that that makes it, I don't know, not very amendable to telemedicine. You know, even when I even when I did it during COVID some, it was it was difficult. People don't really show you you can't touch the patient. Like there's a lot of things that just don't work. Exactly. And I think that's where our, as veterinarians, uh, we do a lot of detective work in ruling out these differentials, but we're, we've got to see that patient because we can't just talk to them, right? You know, we can't get a full description of where it hurts. Exactly. You know, we, we got to, uh, we're doing 90% of our physical exam, just observing that patient and how they're mm-hmm. behaving and how that body is posture is and how that the dog is standing or or behave, you know, so yeah, sometimes uh, as you're talking to the client, if you're just watching the dog, you can figure a lot out without even touching it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and that, that's very difficult to do. You know, the, uh, you've, everybody has that family member that takes a picture of this skin rash and sends it to you and asks you what it is. It's like, well, uh, it could be a number of things. So I need to see it. I need to be able to, uh, get a slide and do a stain or so, you know, something, but right. there's only so much you can do from a, from a picture in a zoom call. And I think it's especially magnified for veterinarians because we've got to see that patient and see how they're acting because that's how they're going to communicate with us and telling us what's wrong, uh, and drive that, that which diagnostics are we going to perform? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just noticed that. And I was wondering what you thought about it. Cause I've been talking and thinking a lot about it and, and even did some of it during COVID and, you know, I kind of have my own thoughts on how it went, but um, it's just, a, it's just a topic. I think that we're going to hear a lot about, and it's interesting to, to see that even in Alaska, it's not super popular. <laughs> Yeah, no, shockingly. And I really thought it was going to be something that was going to take off. But uh, unfortunately, it it just constantly drives me in the conversation with the the, the couple of dozen times that I've done telemedicine where, hey, I still need to see that that patient. Unfortunately, there's only so much you can do through a call. Yeah. So what what am I not asking you? Like what what else do you want to share that I haven't asked you or that I don't know enough to ask you about? Oh, I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I see some students right now coming out that are, you know, in veterinary school or were came out of veterinary school during COVID. And there's, um, I've got a couple of new graduates and they felt very behind uh, the the power curve as far as their skill set graduating because they were impacted so much with this uh, telemet, you know, basically learning, remote learning, remote learning. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the, what was going on. And so, um, realizing that there may be a little bit of a learning curve for new graduates is something that I've experienced recently. Uh, unlike myself, I felt very prepared leaving veterinary school, ready to tackle uh, a plethora of things. And the, the, the young doctors or soon to be doctors that I'm interviewing now, uh, don't feel that same way. I'm not sensing that. And so being ready to, to, a mentor and coach uh, new hires is something that as a practice owner uh, is a new hurdle that um, I am now facing. And so uh, I'm sure that there's other people out there seeing that, but um, that, that has been something new uh, that I think that there's people that are it's graduating changed. veterinary school that has changed a little bit or mm-hmm. impacted negatively by that. Yeah. And I think on some level, different than when I graduated, maybe not so different than when you graduated, but there's, there's just so much information. Like it's just, it just, there's so much that you have to try to learn. And I think that's overwhelming at times. They think they, they've got to remember it all and know it all. And I think just trying to realize that that's an issue and that there's people out there that can help, you know, I'm, I'm constantly telling the new veterinarians that work with me, call the specialist, call the internist, call IDEX, you know, ask them. That's what they're there for. That's what we need to do because you can't know everything. 100%. uh, Exactly. And that's been also, I think, uh, part of the success that I've had here at this hospital is having those specialists in-house here uh, has significantly improved the confidence of the general practitioners because they can reach out with a question right away. They can refer in-house. And 
um, you know, having these emergency doctors that have 10 years of experience on the same shift in the floor as the, the young doctors that are doing the, the general practice side of the house, uh, they can reach out to their colleague and ask a question. And so um, that's been, you, you're exactly right. Uh, unfortunately, fortunately, I've been able to have that in-house, but people that don't have those specialists in-house or don't have the, the luxury of having multiple doctors working with you and you're, you're by yourself, yeah, you, you've got to use your resources. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to uh, get on a, a community forum and, and ask that question or call up a specialist or write IDEX using these these resources that are available. Yeah, I think that I think a lot of a lot of people think that they're supposed to know it all and then it's embarrassing to call. But you know, even in this conversation, you talked about, well, I really thought this telemedicine was going to go over and it didn't. Like that there's things that happen that you don't expect. And so you've got to be okay with that. Like that's part of the deal, the failures and the, you know, the learning curve and asking questions and maybe being wrong at times. You know, I've yeah. called the specialist and they'll say, oh, it's absolutely this. And I'll be like, really? I never thought of that. Okay. You know, and then I go and treat it like they want me to treat it. And sometimes they're right a hundred percent. And then sometimes that doesn't work out either. So I just think the knowledge that we're all learning no matter how long we've been doing it and growing is, is important. Exactly. And uh, I think also being able, not being afraid to have that conversation with the client, right? If, hmm. uh, Thing, if I don't he, know. Exactly. Yeah. And, and telling them, Hey, this is what I think it is, but I don't know. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm going to do some research. I'm going to reach out. Uh, so uh, being able to admit that to the client, have that conversation with the client of the, the, the unknowns that are there and the need to pursue uh, X, Y, and Z to get those answers and, and explaining that to them. Yeah, uh, is I think that, that's something that I see a lot in the, the veterinarians that I coach. They're afraid to say, I don't know. So I don't know what there is in vet school that makes us fearful and makes us think that we need to know. It's kind of scary to me because I think a lot of that inability to say, I don't know, creates the communication issues that we have with the clients. Because if the client knows that this is what I think it is, but it could be, you know, six or eight other things. And this is what we're going to do to find out. That's going to be a lot better than saying, this is absolutely what's going to work. And then it doesn't work. And then they're, you know, disillusioned and upset that they spent money. And, you know, it, it's the communication part of, of the, I don't know. Yep, exactly. And that even goes down to a simple thing like a, a time frame estimate, right? Uh, if you tell a client, well, <laughs> this will be done in 30 minutes, they're they're watching that clock. And yeah. so you got to be really like careful. How long about does a spay take? Exactly. Right. And so um, not also being being able to have that conversation that there, there's variables that are out of out of your control, but we're working to to solve it. And this is what I'm doing to try to figure it out. Or this is what I'm doing to try to treat it. Uh, and this is what I don't know and need to find out. That's okay to have that, that conversation with the client. Yeah. Um, and don't feel like an imposter when you have to say, I don't know. Sure. Like that's yep. part of the deal, right? Yeah. Well, this has been super pleasant. I feel like there's so many other things I could ask you because I, I think that your whole career path has been really fascinating. Is there any like life motto or book that you think somebody should read or any like big words of wisdom that you want to share before we kind of wrap it up. And I can certainly have you back on if there's a lot more we can talk about. Oh, I'd be happy to come back on anytime. You know, I don't, I don't think I have a, a one thing, you know, there isn't one specific uh, key thing. There's a, there's a lot of things that play into it. Uh, but I, I do think that um, it's important to not be afraid to fail, right? Uh, I see mm -hmm. a lot of my my colleagues that were so afraid of failing that they, you know, only lease this small little area in a strip mall or whatever, and now all of a sudden they're freaking out because they're successful and they they can't expand. How do right. I? How Your do I grow? Lot's too small or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Right. And so don't be afraid to. If you're going to fail small, then why not fail big? You know. And so not being afraid to have that field of dreams that you know if I build it, they will come type thing because mm. many times uh, they do, and you're going to be successful if you if you put your your mind to it uh, and aren't afraid to to tackle that. And so that was one of the things that I did right away uh, is in is uh, went big and um, kept uh, being able to invest and grow uh, the, the business. Um, so 
uh, reaching reaching for the, the the stars and you know maybe falling on the moon type thing, not being afraid to <laughs> to to go far uh, and try to try to achieve that. Yeah, and that's with everything in life, right? The sure. only way you're going to get somewhere is by taking a little bit of a risk. There you go. Yeah, yep. yeah. Well, this has been super pleasant. Can you tell um, people if they want to learn more about you or your hospital, how to get a hold of you or your website address or whatever you yeah. want to hear? Yeah, I think the website is the easiest. You know, we've got a, a good social media team uh, and, you know, but tier1vet.com uh, is our website. And, you know, I'm a lot of information there, uh, the ability to, to apply, uh, would love to, uh, get, get some more people, you know, people in Alaska. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All yeah. you people yeah. out there that are working in a toxic hospital and you We've want to move got... to Alaska. Yep. Contact and it's, Sean, uh, right? it's ready to go. It's ready to go. You know, <laughs> like awesome. I said, we've got five it's surgery suites. I, I would love to come see your practice. So when I go to Alaska, I'm going to specifically try to uh, come see your practice. Good. You are invited for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Thank okay. you so much. I, yeah, this has been great. I've had a really good time. If um, anybody out there wants to learn more or has any questions, go ahead and email me. And if you want to see Sean back on the podcast, if he's willing, I will get a hold of him again and get him back on here and talk about anything. Like I, the military thing is fascinating to me. I have a couple of other vets that were on here talking about military and it was, it was really, for those of us that don't know anything about military, it's fascinating. So I, I appreciate your service and I thank you oh, for thank that, you. for the, the people and the dogs that are in the military. I really appreciate that. Yeah, well, thank you for, so much. I appreciate you having me on here and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, so have a beautiful week, everyone. And um, think big and do big things like Dr. Sean McPeck has done in Alaska. And uh, I really appreciate you being here and have a, have a great day. Thanks so much. Bye everybody. Bye Sean.